Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 24. Acts 24, we're going to talk about Felix, finish the chapter. (laughs) We've only got four verses left. The Apostle Paul has been in Caesarea Maritima. Two Caesareas in Israel, one is Caesarea uh, Philippi, the other Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. The city that was built by Herod the Great on the Mediterranean coast of Israel, which was the provincial capital uh, military headquarters as well of Judea and Samaria. Uh, I've got a slide here just that I showed this last time, but just to orient you as to the area we're talking about. This is a current picture of what the ruins at Caesarea look like. Uh, by the way, too, I referred to this area uh, last time as Palestine. It, some of my commentators actually use that as well, but Palestine came later. So uh, same <laughs> territory, different era. Felix was the governor of Judea and Samaria. Uh, And so uh, anyway, that came after the events we're studying here uh, came about. So anyway, Paul was on trial before the Roman governor, a guy by the name of Felix. Uh, Now, uh, there's a Roman historian named Tacitus that had some not so kind things to say about him. He said that he was cruel, licentious, and base. (laughs) In other words, Felix was quite a guy. (laughs) So... Anyway, the the Jewish high priest, Ananias, who Paul had stood before when they had sort of a trial before the Sanhedrin up in Jerusalem, he travels down uh, to Caesarea with a number of members of the council, probably Sadducees as well, because Ananias was a Sadducee. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe most stuff. As Harvey uh, mentioned last week in his study, they, they were really the theological liberals of the day. And so they didn't like Paul because he said, look, I'm on trial because of my belief in the resurrection. And uh, anyway, so they came down, they brought a lawyer with them. It was a skilled, and I might also say slimy guy, an orator by the name of Tertullus. Uh, And he was the one that was going to speak on their behalf to bring charges against Paul. So uh, the Ananias, the other guys, the other Jewish leaders, and then this lawyer there before Felix. <laughs> Tertullus doesn't waste any time. Uh, <laughs> he just, he launches in and begins immediately to suck up to the governor. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, he was just schmoozing this guy all the way. <laughs> and to lavish his praise on Felix to the point of being ridiculous. Uh, and I also mentioned last time that the Jews hated Felix. They <laughs> What this guy was saying was anything but the way that they really felt. But he's trying to score points with the governor, and so that's what he does. Uh, Now, we don't know if Tertullus just sensed that it was time to stop schmoozing or if he had a look or or something from Felix that basically said, knock it off and get to the point. But he stops and says, oh, I'm not going to be tedious any longer. And he begins to level charges against Paul. Uh, So... He starts by accusing Paul of sedition. What he's trying to do is to paint a picture for the governor that Paul is this dangerous enemy of the state. (laughs) Oh, I am so tempted to rabbit trail on current affairs, but I won't. (laughs) You just, I look and I I scratch my head. (laughs) Anyway, so he tells him that that Paul was a pestilent man. This guy's a pest. You got to understand, Felix. He's an enemy of, of the state, and he's a dangerous ringleader of the sect of the of the Nazarenes. By the way, uh, and it, so what he's doing, he's hinting that Paul was the leader 
of a religion that was unlicensed by Rome. And that would be a dangerous charge to make. So because Rome licensed, Judaism was a licensed religion. You could practice that in the empire. You couldn't go off on your own. So he went on to accuse Paul of desecrating the temple uh, by bringing a Gentile inside. And so that act would have had little impact on Rome. Felix probably would have gone, well, okay, so what? But it was a big deal for the Jews that were there. And we talked about that because what Paul does when it's his time to speak is he mounts kind of a dual defense and, and he, he speaks for himself. Uh, one of the areas that he defends himself was, was aimed at the governor for the, 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 the secular charges about, you know, being this pestilent guy and all. The other is he defends himself to the Jews. So he does this, he appeals to both here. I, I just see, this just looks like a Holy Spirit anointed moment where Paul begins to speak and he covers the whole thing. <clears throat> First point that Paul made was that he'd only been in Jerusalem 12 days before was when he showed up there from Caesarea where he had been staying with Philip the Evangelist. We'll get to that in a bit. But so he's there in Caesarea and he says, look, 12 days ago I showed up in Jerusalem. There would not have been time for me to do all of these things that you're accusing me of. Uh, I, there's no way I could have set it up. I couldn't have met the people and, and organized this thing and then launched into it. So uh, he's just saying, there's, there's just nothing there. It's, it's a baseless charge. On top of that, uh, the Jews produced zero evidence against Paul. Remember, we looked at that. Conspicuously absent was anybody that would corroborate their charges, was anybody that was an eyewitness to their charges. Nobody showed up except for these guys with their opinions about what Paul was doing and how he was acting. It didn't fly legally. So... Uh, as far as them saying that he desecrated the temple, then operated this illegal religion, the sect of the Nazarene, Paul again illustrated that that was nonsense. Uh, he says that's baseless because he believed in the same scriptures that they did. He worshiped the same God that they did. And so uh, he's essentially putting forth that, again, it's not, this isn't some unlicensed thing. <laughs> he, he, he wraps up by saying, look, I have a clear conscience before God and before men. Uh, and I have to believe when he says that, that he's prodding them a little bit <laughs> because none of these guys could make that claim. If they did, they'd have been lying. Uh, every one of them, virtually every one of them had intentionally misrepresented the facts in their attempt to be rid of this guy. They wanted Paul out of there. He was, he was a nuisance to them. He was more than a nuisance. He had a following. The Christianity had a growing following in Jerusalem during these days. I mean, this is 10 or 11 years after Pentecost and the church was exploding. I mean, the numbers were being added. We talked about that in a previous study. So they saw Paul as being a real threat to their gig. Remember, these guys had great power in Israel. Even though Israel was a puppet government under Rome, they had great power, and he threatened that power base. They could care less about the spiritual matters. Their hearts were hard. But they saw that, that their power base was, was getting, getting rocked on its foundations through the work of the church and through the work of this man, especially Paul the Apostle. So Felix, he hears all of this, uh, and it, it should have been an open and shut case. He should have heard this and said, you know what, there's no evidence. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. You're free to go. But he doesn't do that. Again, he's a political guy. He's a very shrewd ruler. Yeah, evil ruler and very shrewd. And he sees that he needs to appease Rome 
but he also wants to appease the Jews because he wants to curry their favor. Remember, he's ruling over them, and we'll talk about it in a bit, where things went sour pretty quickly, and he is really trying to make sure that he has a good reputation with the, the leaders in Jerusalem. So uh, what he does is he puts Paul under house arrest, gives him an extended period of time, where, and he doesn't know it at this time, and Paul doesn't know it, but he's going to be there for two years in a relaxed form of custody where he would be free to have his friends visit, bring him provisions and all of that. And yet he would be essentially under house arrest. So what he does in that, he says, well, you know, we're just going to continue this case. Have you ever been to a trial where they say, well, we're going to continue this because we have X that we want to have accomplished? Well, he says, you know, as soon as Claudius Lysias, the commander uh, the guy that arrested you initially in, in Jerusalem, as soon as he comes down, then we'll hear your case. That never happened. Uh, that, there's no record that Claudius ever came down. <laughs> so Felix orders this guard to place Paul under house arrest, uh, gives him the limited freedom that he'd have, and uh, says, your friends can visit you, bring provisions, whatever. So he would be confined. This is interesting. And, and you know, we begin to see God's just kind of soaking through these passages because Paul would be confined to a place called Herod's Palace. And that was a huge, luxurious building. It was built partially over the Mediterranean with a near Olympic-sized pool in the center courtyard. I've got a picture here, Herod's Palace. Now, I want you to notice in slide two, if you see there's a little blue dot right in the middle of the pool, that's a man. I want to give you, show you what the scale is here. In slide three, I just kind of have this arrow coming down. That's how big this thing is. So this is where Paul would be having to suffer for the Lord for a couple of years. I mean, (laughs) he gets a resort, (laughs) essentially. So as far as friends goes, as far as that goes, we know that Luke was traveling with him. Also, as I mentioned, Philip the Evangelist lived in Caesarea. Paul had been at his house just a couple of weeks before. Remember, Philip the Evangelist had the four daughters, the, the four prophetesses and all of that. Uh, and it, I, I looked at this and I just thought, oh Lord, how things had changed. I remember coming up in the billboard industry. I, I worked in the billboard industry for many years and and we sort of had a saying, because it was a very small, I mean, there's, there's billboards everywhere, but as far as the management and, and all of that goes, it was a very small group of people, still is. I mean, just looking at numbers, a small group of people that manage all of that. And, and we used to say when I was kind of coming up in the industry, it's like, you don't want to tick anybody off because you'll probably end up working for them at some point. <laughs> and so, you know, I think about how things have changed here. Remember, Philip is the guy that had to leave Jerusalem. He fled Jerusalem to Caesarea because persecution and imprisonment had broken out in the city under the hands, at the hand of of a guy by the name of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, later to become known as Paul the Apostle. So here is Philip coming to Paul's aid now in his own imprisonment. Uh, and we've talked about it in a previous study when they showed up in Caesarea, when Paul showed up at Philip's door, what would that have been like? This is the guy that had caused you so much grief, that had caused you so much trouble, that had done so much harm. People that you knew being imprisoned or killed, and now he's standing at your door. Well, now Philip is standing at Paul's door here in Caesarea. Interesting how things change, how things had come around to the other direction. So that's the background what's going on with Felix and with Paul and with Paul's companions uh, here in Acts 24. 
And as we wrap up the chapter this morning, we'll see that there's some interesting interplay that goes on. So verse 24 of Acts 24, and after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith uh, in Christ. Now, Drusilla is an interesting woman. She was apparently a a very beautiful young woman. Uh, She was 16 years old when uh, she was the youngest. uh, Herod Agrippa I had five children. She was the youngest of Herod's children. Uh, The sister of Bernice and Agrippa that we'll see in Acts 25, they come and there's a whole thing that goes on with them. Uh, But she was Felix's third wife. He took her from a guy by the name of Azizus, and he was the king of Emesa, which was a region north of Caesarea uh, near the Syrian coast. It was a, sort of a city-state at one time, and there was a whole thing that went on. Don't need to go into it. So, But Philip essentially stole this guy's wife. Now, her father, Agrippa I, he was a brutal king. We read about him in Acts chapter 12. More than a decade earlier, he ordered the death of the apostle James, that he killed him with the sword, we're told. Uh, likely lopped off his head, as they did with John the Baptist, which was the practice that they did with infidels. Uh, again, again, the persecution against the church was mounting. Agrippa then, he, remember, if you remember back in Acts 12, he goes after Paul. He has Paul in prison. He's going pers- to execute him the next day. And remember, the angel shows up in the middle of the night with Paul, and he <laughs> he slaps him on not not my idea when you think about angels and you know they're all you know, fuzzy and nice and all that this guy wasn't i mean he knocks paul he hits him in the side and he says get up get dressed and get moving paul or i mean peter and so he comes after peter and he takes and he delivers peter from the hands of agrippa agrippa can't get at peter at that point great story there anyway Agrippa would die shortly after. He, Agrippa left Jerusalem, went to Caesarea, where he stayed at uh, the palace there, at Herod's palace, and he would die a gruesome death as a result of receiving the people's praise and worship as a god. In Acts 12.23, we read, Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he didn't give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> I'm a visual guy, and we're just going to stop there. (laughs) Anyway, think about it. Drusilla, she's five years old, uh, probably around five years old when these things happened with her father. Uh, And at some point, it's very likely that she became aware that there were circumstances surrounding her father's death that were very unpleasant. Now she's married to this guy, Felix, and I would not be surprised to find out that she was the one that pressed him for the interview with Paul. She probably had... Uh, come to this meeting with some very troubling questions in her heart. Bible doesn't tell us, but you can simply infer because she is Herod's daughter and she saw what he had done and how he had died. And she's wondering what's going on. Remember, it tells us uh, earlier in this chapter that Felix had some understanding of the way. That's the name for the early church. Probably came to him through Drusilla or perhaps from other means. But this is an interesting scene that's getting set up. Verse 25, now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. So as was Paul's style with consummate boldness, I mean, Paul's bold. I love that. And I, folks, I pray for boldness. I truly do for the boldness that that I need to, to not worry about men's opinions of me, 
but to simply speak the truth in love and let the chips fall where they may. Because not everybody's going to pat you on the head when you're sharing the gospel of Christ with them. But you may be the only one who does that with them. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. So remember, Felix, he's a Gentile, and he had lived in this openly adulterous relationship with Drusilla. Uh, He knew something about the early church, but he would have had little understanding of righteousness. And Paul goes right to it. He says, this is what it is to be in right standing before God, Felix. He also knew that Felix was a reckless man. Uh, And so he addresses the issue of self-control in Felix's life because Felix, frankly, had none. He also knows that Felix is an immoral man. Paul appeals to him about the judgment to come. Folks, he he doesn't mince words. He hits Felix hard, but he does it because he wants this guy to, to, to be so rattled that he understands that there is a response required of him. And folks, we don't share the entire gospel with people if we don't share, there is a response that is required of you. Does it make us uncomfortable? Yeah, you bet it does. Our flesh doesn't like it. Does it make them uncomfortable? Yeah, it does. But there's a point where we have to be real, where we have to be able to speak the truth. As I said, speak the truth in love, but the truth sometimes is hard. As a result, Felix came under great conviction, I believe, of the Holy Spirit. Remember in John, in the Gospel of John, John talks about the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that, that he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He goes on and he talks about there are three manifestations of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. There's the with, the in, and the upon. The with is before someone actually comes to Christ, the Holy Spirit is there convicting them of their sin, convicting them about righteousness, convicting about judgment. It's exactly what's going on here. It's exactly why Paul goes there. What does Felix do? Instead of making a decision for Christ, he deflects. Uh, a friend that, that uh, was a prison guard at a prison in Susanville, California, and, and he would share that he would always be talking to the prisoners and, and that they didn't get all up in his face about it. And I think I've shared this before, but, but that they would simply deflect. They would just simply just, yeah, okay, well, that's fine. Well, well that's good for you. Oh, well, that's fine. So what Felix does, he deflects. He says, I'm not going to do any business with you on that basis, Paul. He says, go away. <laughs> this isn't a good time. I'll have my people get with your people, Paul. You know, we'll get back to you on this. And folks, if you've been a Christian for very long at all, you've heard it. I have, where people simply don't want to do business with the truth and they deflect. You know, I got to thinking about this and I thought about something that this is a word that came to me when I was in the hospital last August. And I got to thinking about as it was in the days of Noah. Matthew 24, uh, verse 36, Jesus is talking here. They'd been asking him, well, so when are you coming? What's going to happen? How, what does that look like, Jesus? And he says in verse 36 of Matthew 24, of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For the people in Noah's day, it was just another day. Sun came up. They're talking about that wacko guy out in the desert building that big building out of gopher wood. What are all those animals doing there anyway? (laughs) So he's been doing that for decades. It's just another day. Yeah, yeah, he's doing his thing. Let's do ours. The people were living in abject rebellion towards God. They they, were rejecting everything about him. They didn't care. 
It was just another day. For Felix, go away, Paul. I don't want to hear it. I'm the guy in charge here. You better do what I say. Just go on now. I'll get back to you. For Noah's people, for their people in Noah's day, same thing. Until it began to rain. Now, there's nothing recorded in the Bible or in antiquity. Antiquity means all the ancient, the body of ancient writings and all. There's nothing recorded that Felix ever made a decision for Christ. Now, it's widely believed that he died in his sins and that he died of tuberculosis. That was a big thing going through the ancient world at that time. But the point I'm making is for he and countless others throughout history, as well as with many people today, it was and is just a... Folks, we've got to guard our heart. I, as you, I pray anyway, are looking for the Lord soon and waiting for that trumpet, for that time when he wraps it all up, takes the church out of here, and then virtually hell breaks loose on the earth as God begins to pour out his judgment in this place. Nothing has to be fulfilled in order for that to come about. That could happen today. So from that standpoint, is today just another day? And I think that the point that Jesus was making, as he always did, it's not that we concern ourselves with when, it's that we concern ourselves with making sure that we're ready. That's the emphasis that he had. Verse 26. So meanwhile, Felix also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Oh, I see how it goes. Yeah, there's a little profit motive in here, huh? He goes, hey, Paul, tell me about this Jesus of yours. Oh, by the way, since we're talking here, I might just be convinced to let you go free if you have a reasonable sum of money that you could kind of cross my palms with. So not only is Felix a reckless and immoral guy, but he's also pretty smarmy and... uh, have you ever been around somebody that kind of thinks they're getting away with it? And you're going, oh my goodness, this is me, please. You know, that's kind of what's going on here because Paul and Luke, I mean, Luke wouldn't have written about it if he hadn't have been like, really? <laughs> so he thinks he's being pretty clever and these, these guys see right through it. Luke, enough to the point where Luke writes about it. Regardless of Felix's motive, Paul uses those opportunities. He's given these opportunities to share the love of Christ with this man and his wife. And you know, again, thinking about that, I did prison ministry for a while, and I understood what it was like for guys to come to my Bible studies with ulterior motives. Very often, especially in prison ministry, I know that sounds like a good reason to get out of my cell for a couple of hours. These guys would come for no other reason than to just get out of their cell and stretch their legs and be with the other guys and all that. It was weird because the guards would take like, there'd be like 50 or 60 inmates and they would lock my my buddy and I, the, my pastor and I in this, they would lock us in a room with no guards with all these guys, <laughs> which was like, and Bob, the guy that, that was discipling me in that ministry, said, you better know that you're called <laughs> to do this because <laughs> it can be a dangerous ministry. And it was, but it was greatly rewarding. At any rate, I got to understand that, you know what? People don't always have the greatest motive. You don't know what's going on in the and And that's the point. I knew they didn't have great motives. I didn't bust their chops about it. Hey, you know, why are you really here? I'm not going to do that. I shared the gospel with them. And you want to know something? Sometimes I saw God get a hold of these guys. And I saw that, yeah, they came with, with not the greatest motives, but they left different. They left changed men. And I would see them more often after that. So it was just a great time for me to understand that, you know, it's not up to me to judge the motives of men. It wasn't up to Paul to judge Felix's motives. Yeah, he could see it. I mean, Luke writes about it. So what? He's faithful 
to bring the message of salvation, to bring the message of Christ, to bring the gospel to this man through the many meetings that they would have going forward. Verse 27, but after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Interesting, a Jewish historian named Josephus uh, wrote about this. He, he said that Nero, now remember Claudius is, is, is gone. Nero has come to power. He's the emperor of Rome now. Uh, and, and Felix and his brother had been Claudius's playmates when they were kids. So they had favor. Well, Felix's brother now had favor with Nero, but Felix didn't. <laughs> and Felix had put down a rebellion between the Jews and the Gentiles there in Caesarea and he did it brutally. Word got to Nero about that, uh, and he was not pleased. So he literally, he calls Felix back to Rome, puts him on trial, and he would have been executed had his brother not stepped in and said, uh, hang on a minute here, and, and got Nero to relax about the guy. So Felix knew that when he returned to Rome that he would need to have as good a report as possible from the Jews in Jerusalem. I mean, they were the ones that he was currying the favor with, as I mentioned before. So in a political move, he wants to make sure he's got a good report with them. So he decides, you know, if I let Paul go, they're going to be upset. And they're going to not have anything good to say about me. It should word get back to Rome about that. So he leaves Paul bound. He says, you know what? You're, you're going to stay in, the, in the, the place that you're at, Paul. So... There's a, a fair amount, I wanted to, before we wrap up this part of this morning's message, there's a fair amount of speculation about what Paul did during this two years that he was under house arrest in Caesarea. Remember, just understand uh, this guy's character. He did not stop. I mean, he had covered thousands of miles in his successive missionary journeys. He was always on the move. He was always wading right into the thick of it under great persecution, great peril at times. And we talked about the perils that he faced. I have to think <laughs> that now he's been provided this beachfront palace to reside in, as well as having the freedom to spend time with his friends, his colleague. I have to believe that in this, God was providing a respite for the Apostle Paul, giving him a sabbatical, giving him a break from the ongoing trials, persecutions he constantly had to endure. Remember, he's with a Roman guard. Nobody's going to get to him. There had been so many plots against this, life, this guy's life right up to a couple of days or a few days before these events when the Jews wanted to ambush him a couple of times. And so now he's stuck there. But I also believe that he redeemed the time wise. Uh, I mentioned last time that I believe that it was here that Luke wrote the book of Acts. And I believe he wrote most of it here. Uh, remember, he chronicles Paul's life all the way up until he goes into prison in Rome. And so he couldn't have finished the book here, couldn't have finished Acts. But remember, Caesarea is in close proximity to Jerusalem. And so it would have been the best opportunity for Luke to go and obtain eyewitness testimony from the people that were there in the city as he wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which form one literary unit. It was split later on, but it, Luke and Acts are one literary unit. You could read right from the end of Luke into the beginning of Acts and keep going, and you are reading what Luke wrote. So I believe that that was part of what was going on here during this time. I also believe, and I'm going to step out on a little bit of a theological limb here. I also believe that it was this time that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> Think about it. And I, you know, I always, when I get to that subject, I go, well, you know, I'm not saying it was Paul because we don't know. 
We truly don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but think about what was going on in Jerusalem right up until these things began to unfold in his life. Remember, the Jews, they were starting to lean back towards Judaism at this time. And and that's why Paul took the four men, went into the temple to do the vow of consecration and all of that. He was trying to, to, to illustrate to them that yeah, you're not going to get saved through observing the law. You're not going to that. You're not going to find redemption through the law. But you know, if you want to observe the customs and all of that, then that's your choice. What he does, though, in the book of Hebrews, is he does a deep dive because yeah, you know, that vow didn't go very well. Remember, he was going to finish the days of purification for the vow when they falsely accused him of taking. Uh, the Ephesian behind the Sorig and things went south and that's when the whole the riots and all that started. So anyway, I think that this would have been a great opportunity for Paul to chronicle, probably co-authoring with Luke, the book of Hebrews. Now that's totally an opinion. I want you to know that I'm totally into interpretation, but it fits with what we've seen in the narrative of the book of Acts up until now, because things were People, this is this is a number of years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and and where the Jews had been coming to Christ in, in the thousands, and they were trying to figure out how do we navigate this this her, this Jewish heritage that we have. And Hebrews, I want to talk about. I'm going to I'm going to shift gears a little in the time that we have left this morning. I'm going to do something a little bit different as we wrap up. Stacy and I attended a pastor's conference this last week. Uh, I was reminded while I was there, it was a wonderful time to get away and to just uh, come before the Lord and ask him to speak to us, ask him to inform us about our own lives, about our ministry, things that are going on. I was reminded of a critical, a very critical component of our relationship with the Lord. As you know, we place a very high emphasis here upon teaching you the word of God. We don't teach from the Bible. We teach the Bible. There's a difference. And you got to understand that because there are a lot of churches out there teaching from the Bible, as I've mentioned before, cherry picking a verse and then going off on some tangent. I don't think that that's safe. And we're going to continue to do. I believe it's the central part of God's design for his church. I also believe the Lord has been showing me that out of a deep concern for not straying into error, as so many have, that I can quench the work of the Holy Spirit in my own life and in the life of our church. I do not want to get into theatrics. It's dangerous. But I became aware that I can be so concerned about getting it wrong that I can miss out on an aspect of getting it right. I hope that makes sense to you. This is something that's coming from deep in my heart that I'm still processing, but I believe it's something that, that we as a church need to tend to. An example of this is walking in the continual awareness of the presence of God and as is his desire through the agency of the Holy Spirit. We don't just want him gay. Because I've, I've witnessed so much error in groups who take an extreme position on that. You know, oh, yeah, you know, the whole weird deal. that, you, And you don't need me to do If you've spent any time in Christian media, you see that there's a ton of abuse out there. I don't want to go there. And yet I've wondered, Lord, have I been so reticent that I, that I, have I pulled back so far that I'm quenching the work of your spirit in a healthy way in our fellowship? I began to realize my own tendency is to play it safe, not give as much place to the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst, the, the, the place that he did. So I guess what I'm saying, what I'm confessing to you is in all things, it's a matter of balance. And I believe the Lord is giving me a bit of a course correction with regard to balance. There's a ditty that's been around for some time, which encapsulates what I'm trying to say. And it's all word and no spirit, we dry up. All spirit and no word, we blow up. Both word and spirit, 
we grow up. Gotta give place to the work of the Holy I am looking forward to our night of worship in, in a couple of weeks. I also want to be clear, this is not an emotional thing. There are, there are groups out there that just play on people's emotions. It was not an emotional experience that I had at the conference as I was just crying for God to work in my heart. Because, I mean, yeah, I might be a pastor, but I'm a believer first. And does the Lord just work in me? I shared with my wife that I didn't want to lose the, towards the end of the uh, I've been going to Calvary Chapel conferences for about 35 years. It was by far the most dynamic and the most powerful in my life. It may not have been for the guy standing next. I began to think about, and I told Stacy as we were there getting ready to, to wrap up the conference, I said, you know, I have a little bit of an idea of how Peter must have felt on the Mount of Transfiguration. There he is, you know, he's up there on the mountain with God and uh, up there on the mountain with Jesus. Jesus is transfigured before him into his glorified state. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus tells his men that they were headed for Jerusalem and where he would suffer and be killed and be raised on the third day. In verse 27, Jesus makes it an enigmatic or a mysterious statement. He says in Luke 9, 27, he says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And I, I would read that for many years. I would read that and say, what on earth was he talking about? The kingdom of God didn't come before they died. Oh, yeah, I believe it did. I believe the fulfillment of that, which Jesus speaks of in verse 27, comes eight days later beginning in the very next verse, the account of the transfiguration of Jesus. Yeah, I personally believe it was on Mount Tabor, but nobody knows the mountain it was on. Some say it was Mount Hermon. The, the mountain doesn't matter. What matters is what happened on the mountain. Luke 9, 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. There's Moses and Elijah, representative of the law and the prophets. Amazing. Now, the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain is significant. It gives three disciples a glimpse of the glory that Jesus had before the incarnation and the glory that he would once again have once he resurrected from the dead. You go out to the book of Revelation, you see what John saw there. It was this. And there's a lot more that could be said about the transfiguration. I'm not going to teach the passage. I just want to make a point. Chapter 9, verse 32. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So Peter knows that this is a significant moment. Peter doesn't know why yet that it's a significant moment, but I'll guarantee you this. Those three men's lives were forever altered. They, were, they had seen Jesus. He is. We know that he set aside his divine prerogative when he came and he took on a body, when he took on humanity. And for a moment, they were witnessing the glory of God. Personal. Verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were fearful and they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. In other words, the law and the prophets are done. Now there is a new thing here. My son Jesus, I want you to hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet. No one told them, no one, and told no one in those days any of the things that seen. Now, in Matthew's account of the transfiguration, we're told the men were undone. They were terrified until Jesus came and laid his hand upon them and told them to stop being afraid. 
I hope they have reruns. I want to see. He also tells his men not to mention this to anybody until after he had resurrected from the dead. And they would later write about this experience. Now, as we discussed earlier, James would be the first of the apostles to be brutally executed at the hand of Herod Agrippa I. Just looked at that. So he didn't live, a long, live long enough to share this experience. However, both Peter and John lived to speak of this event in their writing. Did it have an impact on them? Oh, you bet it. At the beginning of John's gospel, in John 1.14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter would later substantiate uh, his writings and, and, and his ministry through the lens of the transfiguration. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says, We didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy bound. Here's my point. The course of these men's lives was permanently altered because they realized they weren't in the presence of a mere man. I mean, they wrestled. I mean, just uh, uh, in Matthew 17 is the, Matthew's account of the transfiguration. Matthew 16 is where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus said, right, you are. Paraphrase, that's what he did. The experience of God firsthand in Jesus' transfiguration. So the question is, so how does that apply to us? I'm glad you asked. In 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul speaks of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with his face glowing, having been in the presence of God. Moses got this too, but there was a difference. The problem was the glory of God was fading as they put a veil over Moses' face. Not so with us. Although we can't see God physically at this time, I realized standing there at the end of the conference that it wasn't about me freezing that moment in time. That moment would pass. But it's about me appropriating the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, in our devotion, and in our worship. For Peter and John and James, the transfiguration was an event. It shaped their lives. For you and I, the ministry of the Holy Spirit isn't an event. He is a life-altering presence to give place to. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul talking about this, he says, but we all, we all, with unveiled face, don't have to have a veil over beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. He's saying this is for us. Let's all stand. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend some time in worship. Folks, I want to encourage you to enter in. I don't know where you're at this morning, whether you're struggling or in pain, or you've been feeling distant from God, or you're just doing great. You're doing well. Praise God if you are. I do know that God wants to meet you here this morning, and I trust that he has and he is. As we lift up our voices in praise together, we're going to sing a few songs as we wrap up this morning. I want to encourage you, open your heart, open your spirit. Let your spirit, let his spirit bear witness to your spirit. Let him in. Experience his presence. Experience his glory. If you think you have a lousy voice, don't worry about it. You're in the company of friends. Besides, we're not singing for them. We're singing for him. Let's pray. Father, my heart's desire is that we as a church could come together, that we could experience your presence in our lives as, as perhaps never before, that, that we would not only mentally appropriate the work of your spirit, that in our heart of hearts, that we could experience you 
in a fresh way. Pour out your Spirit upon us, we pray. Lord, work in us. Bring us comfort. Bring us understanding. Do those things, Father, that only you can do. I think often Jesus would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has a heart that wants to understand, let him understand. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that understand what your Spirit has for us. And as we go forward from here, we love you.